Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I've been praying for you guys this week that uh, we together would have our hearts recalibrated to cling more tightly to Christ alone. Well, this morning, um, as I was preparing for this message, I was reminded uh, of a talk I had just last week with a brother in our congregation. He is struggling with cancer, fighting that, and as we were talking, one of the things that he mentioned was how grateful he was that he has spent so many years drinking deeply from the Word of God. And as he's been talking to his physical and spiritual brothers that he's been discipling, he's been telling them, I want you to know that the time is now to fill yourself with God's Word so that when suffering strikes, you're, you're ready. So that whenever hard things come, you're able to view them through the lens of who you are in Christ. And uh, was super encouraged by that. But one of the things that uh, that conversation reminded me of was the reality that we need good theology to help us with life's bruises. Sometimes we are struck by a, a difficult world that is broken, but we need to be careful that we are, not, we are trying not to work from our suffering and bruises back to a theology of God that is alien to Scripture. And I, I think you know what I'm talking about if you've been through hard seasons in life. It's in those difficulties and those struggles and those trials that you start to ask big questions about God. You're, you're faced with questions of doubt, discouragement, and some people have taken those moments to actually reframe God in a way that is not the way the Bible presents God. Uh, there was a pastor, Pastor John Sanders, uh, who's also a writer who wrote a book uh, some years ago called God, The God Who Risks, and I, I wouldn't recommend that book. But in this book, he shares this story about how he set out to reframe his understanding of God. And it begins with the story of his childhood when he came home to find his beloved brother under the wheel of a truck. And uh, it was terrifying. Uh, and we find that later in this book, he says that he was helping shepherd people through painful experiences. And um, he was constantly reminded of the question that he asked in that moment of his suffering God, why did you kill my brother? And, and it was from that that he began to reframe God. And he started with, he says, tragedies like this one. And I sought out to create a different model of God that would see God as being just as surprised by the various grief-inducing trials and tragedies of this life. He, he thought that reframing God would actually give him a God that would make him more comforted when things that he did not expect came his way, when he was bruised by life. That's the comfort he gives hurting people. It is called open theism. It's the idea that God, he can't see the future, much less control what's coming. Now, here's the problem. That's not biblical. It's not the God of Scriptures who has revealed himself to us who is sovereign over history, who is not just one who sees the end from the beginning, but he is actually in control over it. He holds, he holds the reins of it. And we see this in Isaiah 41, 21 to 42, 17 that Ross just read to us that we're going to be thinking through this morning. We, we do not have a God who does not see and control the future. Uh, that God is not God. So this morning, we're back in our summer series in Isaiah 40 to 55, which is that servant section of Isaiah. 
I'll remind you that that first section of Isaiah talks about a king who would come and save God's people. But it ends with even one of Judah's greatest kings failing to fulfill God's promises. He sinned against God. It resulted in his sons uh, being told that they would be carried off into exile. And in chapter 40 of Isaiah, God immediately turns after talking about the failure of the kings and the coming exile. He immediately sends comfort to his elect servant, the nation of Israel. He says, I, I have comfort for you. There is good news that is coming. And in Isaiah 41, 21 to 42, 17, where we are this morning, we find that God is still comforting his people, but here by promising to send a singular servant. Not just the nation of Israel as a servant, but a singular servant. This is the first of four servant songs that we find comforting God's people in the book of Isaiah. But what's interesting is, is that God's servant accomplishes for the nations what their idols could not do. It's striking. Here's a, a question I, I would ask, though. Think about this. Why would the hope of the nations, nations like Babylon, whom they're sitting in exile to at this moment, bring comfort to this exiled people Israel? Well, I've got a couple of quick answers I would give up front, and you can continue to think and think about this later. But the first is, if it, it fulfilled God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. You remember there that God made a covenant with him, promised him an offspring, and he told him the families of the earth will be blessed through him. So one is he's fulfilling that promise to Abraham. That would be an encouragement to people who think that God has forgotten his promises. And second, God sees the future and is sovereign over it. He says, I, I see what is coming. I'm going to tell you what is happening before it happens. So those are the two encouragements for why this in big picture form, should be encouragement to Israel. Here's our big idea, though. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Our big idea is this. It's that God's bruised people are comforted by God's gentle and strong servant making covenant with the nations. God's bruised people are comforted by God's gentle and strong servant making covenant with the nations. Uh, notice first, in verses 21 to 29, God says, I want you to look at the idols and the idolaters. Take note of them. Now, Israelites, if you were a good Israelite, your, your favorite verse was not John 3, 16. Hadn't happened yet, right? But two times a day, you would actually cite another text, the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Uh, that's that text that opens up, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is no other. He alone is God. Now, this verse really sort of cordoned them off as unique from the nations that would have surrounded them. Uh, the surrounding nations believed that there were many gods, and they worshipped them through thousands of idols and gods. Uh, they were territorial gods who they believed had a certain kind of uh, special mojo in certain zip codes that didn't work the same in other zip codes. And so it's in that context that Israel believed in one God who rejected idolatry. They were distinct from the nations around them. Well, in Isaiah 41, 21, Yahweh is introducing himself merely as a parochial God or a king of Jacob. He's coming in low. And he says this in verse 21, Set forth your case, says the Lord. 
bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Now, this is not the same image that we get in Isaiah 6 of the God of Israel being the sovereign over the whole earth. No, here he's coming in low. And notice what he says first. He says, look at the idolaters. Now, in verse 22, you'll notice uh, that uh, this context is uh, in this sort of a, a court scene where God is inviting the idols and their gods into this court scene to basically, he's saying, I, these idolaters, I want you to bring in your gods, and I want you to give me proof that you really are gods. He's kind of, in verse 22, throwing down the gauntlet, calling these idolaters to lug those gods into this court scene to prove their deity. And you'll notice that he points out two proofs that he's looking for. The first is uh, in verse 22 and the second in verse 23. Look there with me real quick and see what it says. This is what he says. Tell us the former things. This is God speaking to the, uh, the idolaters and their gods. Tell us what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come after, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Uh, that word for terrified could also be that we might see. We might see who you really are. Now, that first proof in verse 22 is, uh, if you're really God, then I want you to give an explanation of past events in history and what it is that you were doing through those events. If you're sovereign over history, what's the meaning? And, and then second, in verse 23, he says, and also I want you to foretell what is coming in the future with a kind of assumption that they have the power to bring about those events. Now, when the idols are speechless in verse 24, God tells them to behold or look. Look at the idols. They are less than nothing. An abomination is the one who chooses you, you idols. Now, the scene here reminded me of a book that was written by New Testament scholar uh, Greg Beale, where he entitled it, We Are What We Worship. And that is exactly what this scene is, is commenting on. It's saying that the idols that you worship, you become exactly like them. God is telling them that these idolaters become nothing like the gods they worship. They are abhorrent or detestable before Him. Why? Because they have not given the true God the glory that is due His name. Now, in verses 25 to 29, you'll notice that he moves on to say the king of Jacob sees and controls the future. So, in other words, they can't see, they cannot control the future, but the king of Jacob can, and he proves it. Now, when he takes the stand, God, he is proving his power over history in verse 24. Uh, notice what he says. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads the clay. So God is forecasting here a coming conqueror, which I understand to be King Cyrus of Persia, which would have happened a century after this. If you notice that phrase in my ESV, it says, he shall call upon my name. Uh, that might be confusing. You might think to yourself, did this foreign king call on the name of the Lord? I think, though, Alec Moitier in his, his translation is helpful. He says what this might better be said is this. He will, by his actions, proclaim the name of the Lord. Now, how would Cyrus, by his actions, proclaim the name of the Lord? 
Well, it's his arrival that proves that the king of Jacob controls the future, unlike all of those false gods of the nations who stood silent in court without evidence. In addition, it shows that he's no parochial god, merely sovereign over Israel. He is a god who is sovereign over great nations. He's he's sovereign over nations like Assyria and Babylon and Persia that is to come and the great nations that will come after them. That language of potter treading clay is is actually a, a phrase that's standard fare for describing God's sovereignty over an unresisting object throughout Isaiah. He is like a potter who is pushing down the clay to reform and reshape it for his purposes. I've never done pottery myself. I know many of you have. But I've never heard a story about clay rejecting the potter's hand. I haven't even seen a cartoon about it. I'm sure it's thus to be made. But we don't find objects like clay resisting the sovereign rule of the potter. Paul picks up the same image in Romans 9. And we'll see that later next semester. But verse 26 here seems to declare the king of Jacob the winner, saying he is right, or he is in the right. He has shown that his declaration that he is the only true God has been verified. While the idols and idolaters receive no words from their gods, he receives a verdict of the true God. See, the idolaters and their idols are speechless before him, and the verdict is read. It says, none declared it, none proclaimed, none heard your words. The idols had nothing to say. They were speechless, and their idolaters had no word from their gods. Well, not so in Zion. Notice, if you look in verse 27, that God's people do get a word from God. God's people heard of the coming conqueror, and Jerusalem heard of the message of good news or the gospel. And then again, in verses 28 to 29, the idolaters, they have no counselor speaking to them, and their religious efforts are worthless, while his people have been promised a coming wonderful counselor in Isaiah 9. They have not heard from God, because there is no God but the true God. Now, three things stand out here, quickly, just to to pick up as we go. First, God says proof of divinity centers on the ability to see and control the future. Did you see this? This is not a picture of a God who created creation and then stepped away like a watchmaker to just let it kind of wind along on its own, choosing its own path. This isn't a picture of a God who kind of entered into a creation that already existed and is kind of just responding to whatever hits him in any moment. No, this is a a big picture of a sovereign God that Isaiah is giving before us. Second, only the God of the Bible has done this. There is no other God beside him that is equal in authority or sovereignty or ability to see the future and control what is coming. He is alone God. There is none like him. Third, we become what we worship. Becoming glorifying because we are worshiping him or becoming detestable before him because we are worshiping any of a multitude of other gods. Our, our, our dignity as humans We were created, you were created for the purpose of bringing glory to the God who made you to image him. Seeking to find glory or joy or satisfaction or the good life by any other means in this world, apart from seeking it in the way that he has created you for, making much of him, is going to lead to you 
having an appetite that is never filled. It's going to leave you more thirsty and hungry than when you began. We were made to worship Him, and there's nothing else that will be satisfying. But even more than that, there is no way to really know what it means to be human apart from giving ourselves to the living God who gives life. Now, maybe you're pretty confident primitive people struggled with idolatry and not you. Some of you have uh, maybe uh, perhaps family members uh, who have idols to Buddha or any of a host of other gods, but most of us do not. And any of us, many of us probably feel confident that the primitive people who got excited about making fire struggled with idolatry, but not you. But we all struggle with idolatrous hearts. I think we find that throughout the Scriptures, the New Testament, many reminders of this. In fact, Paul gives a picture of the heart of idolatry in Romans 1.25, where he says that we exchange the truth about God and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. During the Reformation, Martin Luther was commenting on the first commandment against having other gods, and then, of course, the second like it, not having idols. And he said, we still struggle with idolatry. And he defined it this way. He said, idolatry is that to which your heart clings to and it trusts itself in. I say, that is really your God. See, our hearts are prone to wonder and to cling to things that control our loves, our desires, our dreams. We get angry when we don't get the things that we believe are going to make us happy and that thing is is not God? Think about it. When we're sick, have you noticed the tendency in your heart to sort of, and I hope not, but sometimes maybe, move away from prayer towards a trust in technology? Like, oh, if I just get the right medicine. If If I just get the, the new trial that, that promises everybody gets healed. Like everything's going to change. And those aren't bad things, but, but is there a way in which our confidence in God is shifting from Him towards these things? Do we long for relationships? We do some crazy stuff as humans for relationships, right? We get excited about things that we think that if we have them, then people will love us more. Things like makeup. I'll just have to stop there. I don't know much about makeup. But you know what I'm talking about if you wear makeup. Or if you're a a guy, like uh, maybe you're excited about the hottest new shoes. You're like, oh man, if I get this new pair of Air Jordans and I I like walk in with those, people are going to be like, you are awesome. I want to be your friend. I did get a pair. It didn't happen. Do some of you rewrite your sexual ethics? Because... You have a child who you love deeply who has decided to enter into a homosexual relationship or a polyamorous relationship. And and you believe that if you are going to have a loving, friendly relationship with that child, you're going to need to edit the way that you talk about sexuality in a way that's different from the Bible. And it's not just that you're going to have to edit the Bible, you're going to have to edit God and say, this is what God's really like, not like what His Word says. Do we trust God for daily bread? 
Or do we skip prayer and go straight to work so that we can eat? Dads, do we serve our wives and kids when we are tired? And we're tired a lot, aren't we? Or do we get angry because we're clinging to the God of comfort? In our hearts, it's, it's a minefield, the ways that we can worship things that we ought not. Our hearts are idle factories. So c- come in close just for a moment. This is critical theology for those who are beaten down in the ghetto alleys of this life, who feel bruised from the way that they've been pummeled from every direction. God spoke these words to encourage his people while suffering in exile in Babylon, where they would have been tempted to go God shopping or God editing so they could get some relief. And there were thousands of gods everywhere in Babylon to choose from. Whatever your need is, whatever it is that you need to manipulate about God to change about your experiences, you could find it there. And in the same way, we can think that if we get that next medical trial, that it will bring us life. Or that if we get that new pair of Jordans that promises friends. Or if we, if we want that relationship with our child, we can recant our sexual ethics. Or if we want a, a bonus for working hard, then we need to uh, spend less time in prayer. Or if we want weekend rest, uh, all of these things that we look to, we can find them and yet still end up missing the one true God. And if we do, if we miss Him, our life becomes meaningless. And I don't think any of you want a meaningless life. If you're anything like me, I long to have a fruitful life, a life that issues out not just in my own life and joy, but that it spreads to my family and my fellow church members and non-Christians and those around me. I want to be fruitful. And that doesn't happen apart from looking to the one true God, the God who holds history in his hands, the God who makes promises that he will keep because he is sovereign over all things. Don't miss God. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but if you feel far from God, if you feel empty and meaningless, if you feel as though everything is vanity around you, it could be because you have slowly and imperceptibly started to cling to something other than the one true God, some cheap counterfeit this morning. And what my hope is this morning is that you're evaluating your soul and you're saying, what is it? I'm sure it's something. I'm sure it's many things. And that you are starting to again cling to and grip onto the true and living God. You don't need a God that you can control. You were made for a God who controls history. Here's the good news, though. Idols can't save you from being worthless, but God's servant comes for bruised idolaters. Bruised idolaters like you and me in Isaiah 42, 1-9. God said, look at the idols in verse 24. And then look at the idolaters in verse 29. No hope there, but there is hope here. Second, look at God's chosen spirit-anointed servant in Isaiah 42, 1-9. Now God introduces his singular elect servant here, promising a new thing that he will do through him, not like the old things. Now, don't miss this. He, this servant, is different than the idols. He's different than the, the promised coming conqueror who crushes things, the idols who don't speak. This servant is gentle and brings truth, speaks truth to the nations. 
Verse 1 outlines a special relationship to God. Uh, Notice what he says. He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. As we read through Isaiah and the Bible, Servant is a title that is sometimes given to a group and sometimes to individuals. Here it speaks of an individual. And when it speaks of individuals, sometimes it speaks of individuals as those who merely are carrying out the purposes of God. And other times it speaks of those who not only carry out the purposes of God, but have a unique relationship with God. So, for instance, if you're reading through the book of Jeremiah, you'll find in Jeremiah 27, 6, that Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of God. God calls him my servant. But that is not describing a unique, beautiful covenant relationship between him and God. It means that he is being used for his purposes. But elsewhere, my servant speaks of that beautiful meeting of relationship and function. Like with David. David, who the phrase is used most for in the Old Testament, it seems. This servant enjoys a unique relationship with God. God's servant here enjoys an intimacy with him as one whom God holds on to with a white-knuckled tenacity. It is a kind of love grip that God has on this servant. He will not let him go. He is with him to the very end. Notice that God here, he elected this servant. He delights in this servant from his inner being. Not only that, God anoints this servant with the Spirit for the purpose of what? Bringing justice to the nations. Justice is a good thing. Now, don't miss this. In context, this justice seems to speak about the result of the trial that just took place in verses 21 to 29. He is going to bring a declaration of the fact that the Lord has won the battle of the gods and the idols. In Isaiah 41 to 21, 29, it described that court case, and here the servant is going to bring the message of the good things that it's resulted in. The servant's going to bring good news to the nations about the truth about God to the world, and he's going to establish justice. And just take note of how unexpected this servant will be, not like the conqueror who crushes in verses 2 to 4. Here's what it says. This servant, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A breeze rude he will not break and faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He is gentle, and he is strong. Verse 2 uses a few phrases to describe his gentleness of speech. He doesn't scream at people, doesn't talk over them, doesn't promote himself. And then verse 3 describes how he is also gentle with the weak. He says, a a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Yet he faithfully brings forth justice. And then verse 4, it mirrors verse 3, describing his strength. He's gentle and he's strong. He does not grow faint or get discouraged. 
which literally means he does not burn low or bruise. He's different than the others. His internal light does not dim. His external resistance that he receives does not weaken him till he establishes justice throughout the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law, which one commentator says means the nations will stake their future on what he reveals to them, having been won to his allegiance. They see who the true God is. They believe. I don't miss the beauty. Isaiah 10, 33 to 34 has a, another picture of God's strength. There, God is pictured as this powerful lumberjack with a huge axe. And he's coming through to this powerful king who's like a, a mighty tree. He declares his greatness, and God comes in, and he cuts him down with one clean stroke. He shows his power, cutting down proud kings of the nations. But here, notice that God sends this servant for the bruised reeds, which he says, I will not break. You can imagine a lumberjack just kind of going through the forest. He's got his eye on the tree, and he's like, you think you're something, and I'm about to show you my axe. But as he goes, he's noticing bruised reeds all about him, which if he, he touches just wrong, will not need an axe to knock them over. They'll just fall apart. And so he's also gently walking through, and he's precise in what he's doing, bringing the proud low, but also taking care of those who are weak and bruised. And pride leads us to create idols. Before we raise up that idol in our imagination, we have already imagined something about us that is not true. We thought that we could elevate ourselves above God, but in reality, in trying to do that, we have lost our glory. We've become low. God is the source of our glory. And when those idols disappoint the proud, it leaves them bruised and confused, doesn't it? Like, I gave my life to this. I thought it was going to be different. Why am I sad? Why do I feel hopeless in this moment? Have I been worshiping something other than the true and living God? Even going to church? Even going to small group? Even discipling others? This brood reed is a person who has come to an end of himself or herself in trying to find meaning through self-expression along with making gods that suit their desires, but instead seek to live in submission to the God who holds history in his hands. And they, they cling to him. That's the bruised reed. I can't hold myself up. I need you to hold me up. I mean, it sounds so much like the servant who is so different than that conqueror who comes to crush those who have resisted him. But he comes to gently and yet faithfully reveal the good news of God to these bruised reeds. He's strong enough to bring justice, but he's gentle enough to help the bruised, bringing, the bruised people by bringing hope to the hopeless. And then notice in verse 5, Isaiah declares that the king of Jacob, he is the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth. The ruse is over. I'm not just the king of Jacob. I am the king of heaven and earth. We are one and the same. 
And did you notice that he gives breath to the people on earth? And he gives them a spirit to walk in it. He's not just sovereign over the big picture of human history. He's sovereign over your life. And then he speaks to the serpent in verses 6 to 7 directly. He gives them his mission. And notice what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. See, God sends his servant to bring the nations into a new covenant with him. Now, this is a major move in redemptive history. God, the God of Israel, is now saying, I am going to claim the nations for myself. God was the covenant God of Israel throughout history, but God would now make a new covenant with people from the nations. He would be their God. They would be his people. And this would all be by the virtue of the work of this servant. Now, you'll remember that idolaters throughout the Old Testament are pictured as being deaf, dumb, and blind, just like they're idols. But this servant would come as a light to the nations, opening up blind eyes and delivering them out of bondage to sin and death, that dungeon that they've been trapped in. And this describes a, a new kind of exodus out of a new kind of slavery to false gods that cannot see the future or hold it. Uh, that he is inviting them to come into covenant with the God who sees and controls the future. See, the servant would usher in light and truth about who God is. But in verse 8, God declares that his name will be made great through the work of this servant amongst the nations. He says, my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What's fascinating is uh, if you were to look at the Westminster Confession or their catechism, the first question they ask is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what we were made for. We were made to join God and what is right in creation, which is to give him glory because there's none glorious as he is. That is part of who we are. And our joy is wrapped up in seeing God made much of. See, if we're not living for God's glory, we will not receive the otherworldly joy and that sense of purpose that God created us for. Now, how will his name receive all glory? Well, I think verse 9 reiterates it by telling us what he's been saying throughout. Notice what he says. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you them. Did you catch that repeated topic? The former things, the, the conqueror Cyrus coming, those things have come to pass, and the new things, that speaks of God's greater servant that is to come. When those things happen, that will bring glory to me. Well, who is that greater servant? It's Jesus. We know from Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is healing the sick all around him, and he ordered them not to make him known. And then in Matthew 12, 17, he explains that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42. Immediately after that, immediately after this, this section is quoted about the servant giving sight to the blind, we find that Jesus healed a blind, mute, demon-possessed man. Now, I think Matthew's point here is that 
Clearly, Jesus is God's greater elect spirit-anointed servant. He is the one that we've been looking for. He is the one who shows that God sees history and is sovereign over history. History is for the salvation of the nations. And that story centers on the person, the servant Jesus Christ. But catch this. There are a few things that stand out in these verses. First, notice, as we look at Matthew 12, physical and spiritual healing of the weak and bruised is seen as a messianic fulfillment of Isaiah 42. In other words, Matthew's understanding of the reason that Jesus is healing those who are sick and then telling them not to tell anybody about it, and then delivering a man spiritually from demonic possession and uh, helping him to have eyes to see where he was physically blind is to declare that he is the Messiah that we've been long, longing for according to Isaiah 42. This isn't normative. This is giving us a picture of who Jesus is uniquely in history. Second, notice that Jesus comes to help those who can't help themselves. He doesn't come for mighty trees because he needs them in his glorious garden. He comes for bruised reeds to redeem and restore, to make them new. He comes to those who have seen the emptiness and the shallowness of all those things that we run after to worship, love, and cling to. And know that we need something better, which is God. Third, God created us to see his son Jesus and to then go and speak, bringing the light of the gospel to others. I mean, isn't that what happens when that demonic man who is blind is healed in Matthew chapter 12? His response after that was that he spoke and he saw. He spoke, what, I wonder what he was talking about. Maybe the fact that he had been like demonically possessed and released by Jesus, and now that he could see whereas he could not see before. Why? Because this is the long-awaited servant that we've been waiting on. Fourth, the good news of Jesus is for bruised people who have seen the emptiness of living for anything and everything else. I mean, aren't we like Peter in John 6? After many had deserted Jesus, Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, do you want to go away as well? Like a lot of people deconstructing in that moment. Do you want to go with them? And Peter responds in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other fountain to drink from. There's nowhere else to go but Jesus for what our hearts long for. Catch this Trinity Bible Church. This is a truth worth singing about week in and week out. God's servant has come. And he has served us in this way by laying down his life for you and for me to save us from all of our idolatrous hearts and the false gods that we've clung to so that we might cling to Christ, the God-man, and have hope not just in this life but in the life to come. That is worth every breath that we have, every Sunday, between the lines on Sundays, and forevermore. When we sing, we, we ought to be singing because we were made to sing the glories of the God who saves bruised reeds like you and me. We declare the truth of what God has done. That's why the servant ushering in the new things in verse 9 results in a new song in verses 10 to 17. Did you see that? The servant causes the nations to sing to the true God. 
That's the response. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. I mean, the images here are in verses 11 to 12 of the Gentile nations and the uttermost parts of the earth singing the praises of God's servant who is gentle and strong, who has brought them into a new covenant with God. They give God the glory to his name in life and song. They're singing about Yahweh as the king of the earth, going out like a mighty warrior, shouting with a war cry and triumphing all over all of his foes. And then verse 14 speaks of the patience of God. Patience, like like a, a woman waiting to deliver a child throughout history. God is so patient, way more patient than us. We always feel like God is late, like he owes us something, like rent was due last week or a year ago. Why, why haven't you paid yet? Like you owe me. And yet we find in Peter that, that a thousand years is like a day with the Lord. He is so patient. Not only is he patient in duration, he's patient with you and me in our sins. He is a patient God. And don't miss this. God feels slow to us in bringing about his purposes, but he always shows up right on time, his time. And we must trust that God is always on time. In God's time, he devastates in verse 15, and he rescues in verse 16. In fact, if you look at verse 16, look what he says. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. What is fascinating in verse 7 is that God's servant who rescues the blind is here revealed as Yahweh himself. We see this throughout Isaiah, even in the king section. The king does something, and then Yahweh himself does that exact same thing, and it almost blurs the line between who's the king and who is God. Well, I think there's a tension that he wants us to have throughout, a perfect tension for preparing the way for the servant who is the God-man. But, but notice in verse 17, there's a warning that not everyone is rescued on the last day. Those who turn back speaks of those who see the truth. They've seen the servant, and yet they turn back to their idols and cling to other things, resulting in utter shame, the opposite of glory. So let me close with uh, just a few quick points. First, Christian, worship is necessarily Christ-centered because it is in Christ that God the Father has revealed his redemptive purposes for humanity. It is not less Trinitarian to be Christ-centered in the way that we worship. The job of the Holy Spirit is to point to the Father's promises throughout history being fulfilled in the God-man Jesus Christ. This is why idolatry is foolish. God created us in the image of him to glorify him and to bring others near to God. And God's son, Jesus, fulfilled God's purposes as a human such that to look to the son is to look on the father. He is, in Colossians 1.15, the very image of the invisible God. So as we worship the son, we worship the father, 
And this is all fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, we don't worship a generic God. Now, I, I love sports. I, I know if you've heard like any sermons from me, you know that. I, I love watching all kinds of sports, basketball, football, baseball, not much, but most of the other sports, golf, I don't know if it's a sport, but like most sports, right? And, and when I'm watching sports, it's amazing how after like a championship is won, you always hear somebody say something like, I just thank God for giving me the power to be the most amazing basketball player that's ever existed. He's very kind in that. And then I'm going to make a lot of money. Here's the thing I'm always wondering. Which God are you talking about, friend? Like, which God? Because there are many gods. And, and you might say well, that seems kind of abstract. I mean, that's basketball players, football players have to say that. But I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been in the lobby and I've, I've asked someone who's a visitor, like, hey, are you a Christian? And now you know not, what not to answer. Uh, they'll say something like, oh, no, but I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. And sometimes they don't even use no. They'll say, yeah, I'm spiritual. As though that's equal to being a follower of Christ and one who receives all of the promises that have been given to the people of God throughout the Scriptures. One who has a future and a hope. One who's been rescued from death and sin. Rescued from hopelessness and helplessness. And raised up to a new life that is meaningful forevermore. As though like that's the same thing. Yeah, I'm spiritual. No, spiritual is, is not it. In fact, there were probably many in Isaiah's day who would have said, yeah, I'm just spiritual, which is another word for idolatrous. Like, I follow all kinds of different things. I don't, I don't necessarily see the need of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ like God the Father has said that I need. We don't worship a generic God. We worship the God of the Bible, the triune God, who has come before us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The nature of Christ reveals true religion from false religion. Here's the deal. We have had so many people who've said that they have deconstructed uh, throughout COVID and beyond. And, and here's the question I'm constantly asking. Did you really deconstruct or did you just realize what you were constructed to? Like you were connected to something other than Christ. You realize that the Christ of the Bible is not your Christ. Never was. You had another kind of Christ that you had constructed in your mind, another idol or picture that really fit nicely into your worldview. But once it got uncomfortable, like God's sometimes can do, like you walked away from God rather than walking away from whatever it is that you love more. We don't worship a generic God. We worship the God who sent his son for bruised reeds to be struck and died for us on the cross so that we might live. I'm wondering this morning, as we're getting ready to sing, if you have something to sing about. Christian brothers and sisters, I hope you have, after thinking about God this morning, tons to sing loudly about. But if you're a non-Christian, are you in a place where you feel like you want something to sing about? You're exhausted by a world full of things to live for that leave you feeling empty and cheap. Let me encourage you, turn to God's servant, the God-man Jesus. Believe that he came and died on a cross to bring you a new and better covenant sealed with his blood on the cross. And God will forgive you of your sins. He'll make you right with God through his servant who speaks truth in a world full of lies. So tell me, if you've 
If you've done this before you leave, I would love for you just to come and, and share with me about what God's doing in your life so that we can seek God together. Jesus proves God is sovereign over history. He keeps his promise to save bruised reeds like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a group of bruised sinners who have been redeemed by grace. Father, we praise you that you are transforming us from one degree of glory into the next, into your image, in the image of your Son. We long for the day when Jesus comes back so that we will fully look like what you have created us to be. But Lord, until that day, help us to cling to Jesus Christ. Help us to be a witness to others who are living for vapor that's going to pass away that will not hold them in the last judgment. Lord, help us to be a testimony to your goodness and your greatness, to your servant who is gentle and strong and able to save, who has a new and better covenant. And it's his name that we do pray. Amen.